The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. Um, so welcome to, to all of you. Happy to, uh, happy to be with you and um, be reflecting on these themes this morning. I, I just have a few few slides. I, I don't, I'm not planning to uh, present a lot in that form, but uh, here you see um, the uh, yeah growth of uh, of of interest in meditation in the scientific literature. So over the last thirty years, um, you see from you know, searching, searching uh, for the, the keyword meditation, 13 in 1991 to, to almost 2000 last year. And, um, and uh, we go back to, to William James, you know, um, say, saying the faculty of voluntarily bringing back a wandering attention over and over again is the very root of judgment, character, and will. An education which should improve this faculty would be the education par excellence. But it is easier to define this ideal than to give practical directions for bringing it about. Um, In a way... uh, one set of practical directions for bringing it about is, is what we do, what we do, uh, this attentional training that we do. Um, but this is also, this, this Asian monastic path is also a mystical path. It is not um, attentional training for its own purposes exactly. And so again, we have James echoing um, with a, a certain kind of reverence for, for this mystical dimension. Um, our normal waking consciousness, rational consciousness, as we call it, is but one special type of consciousness. Well, it's all about it, parted from it from the, by the filmiest of screens. There lie potential forms of consciousness entirely different. We may go through life without suspecting their existence, but no account of the universe in its totality can be final, which leaves these other forms of consciousness disregarded. How to regard them is the question, for they are so discontinuous with ordinary consciousness. They may determine attitudes, though they cannot furnish formulas, and open a region, though they fail to give a map. They forbid a premature closing of our accounts with reality. The um, increase in the kind of uh, scientific interest around meditation is evident, uh, reflected in the increase in, in practice, use of meditation. And so this is... Um, there's not good data from, from more recently that I could find easily, um, but, but um, one of the kind of repeated national surveys here we see from 2012 to 2017, um, you see the growth in that, that center, center columns of, of meditation. And this is, this is just have you practiced meditation at some point in the past 12 months? That's, that's been the, the question. And um, you see it's grouped here with, with, uh, with yoga and chiropractory, which is kind of interesting and sort of a testament to the state of, of uh, you know, how these things are grouped together is, is meaningful in itself. Um, here's data for, for kids. Um, uh, you see... The, again, the growth over the, this period of, of five years. And I, I imagine um, there's been a lot of growth since 2017, uh, certain, just anecdotally, you know, when, when I teach retreats, um, 
if there's a hundred people in the retreat, there will be many, I don't know what, it's a lot of people who are now coming into retreat, residential retreat through the route of apps and, and um, digital technology. And, um, and so um, the, the, uh, pause this for a moment, the, the, kind of motivations that people are coming in with to practice meditation um, about 10% were recommended by a physician. Yeah. Maybe 20% um, did consulted a teacher or a class. Most people are practicing on their own, actually, it seems. And the people who did consult with a class or a teacher or something, the median annual spending on meditation was $120. Um, and the practice motivations, the practice motivations um, were um, general wellness or, or disease prevention in about three quarters of people, improving energy in 60%, improving memory concentration in about half of, of the respondents. And um, I don't know where enlightenment was there, you know, but it's lower down. Right. And so um, this is a different, this is a, this is the convergence or collision of different traditions. And so the question like, how should we, how should we think about the application of a, of a kind of Asian renunciate tradition to the realm of mental health, of healing? Um, what, what exactly is the Dharma for? And who gets to decide what it's for? Or what is, to use medical language, what is the scope of practice of the Dharma? You know? And what is the, the scope of practice of a nurse or a nurse practitioner or a physician or something like this? What is the scope of practice of the Dharma? And how is, um, how is the Dharma transformed by its interaction with the realm of mental health, with the, the realm of uh, all the different, different uh, encounters it's having? in this culture. Um, in the, the New York Times about now, about 15 years ago, uh, they wrote, the question's not whether mindfulness meditation will become a sophisticated therapeutic technique or lapse into self-help cliche. The answer to that question is yes to both. So, We can think about um, well-being as a kind of, as a continuum, as a continuum. And so on one end, we have the most intense, unmitigated suffering. And then on the other end, we have like just profound flourishing. Maybe we call it self-actualization or awakening or something like this. And then at the midpoint, we have something what we call normal, you know. Um, of course, you know, Maslow said, what we call normal in psychology is really a psychopathology of the average, so undramatic and so widely spread that we don't even notice it ordinarily. It's very harsh language, actually, but... What we call normal is the psychopathology of the average, meaning what we consider kind of like, you know, what a, a, an okay human life is actually full of dukkha. Yeah. And traditionally, the, the path of Dharma has been largely devoted to the span of well-being from okay enough to profound flourishing. It's been about potentiating well-being. 
it's been about uh, kind of refining out more and more subtle layers of, of suffering. But um, importantly, the, the, the Dharma has relevance for this half of the spectrum of well-being too. And this is where the public health interest really is. This is where there's much more bang for the buck, actually. Um, you know, fiddling with the subtle kalesas, attachment to light and bliss. This is not the priority of public health institutions. Yeah. It's like, no, there's like so much suffering. And how can this path of practice be of use in those ways? So, um, there are academic, and I'm, I'm, there's, there were so many different ways I might have gone during this, this time together and how I sort of structured the different themes and um, uh, am, yeah, no doubt leaving, uh, you know, lots of questions unanswered. And, uh, but um, hopefully we, we, we have some, some productive discussions together. So um, there are, one of the questions is how we sort of situate this Buddhist tradition with, with science, with empiricism. And, um, and in, in ac the academic world, there's sometimes, you know, there are, there are buildings that separate different departments. There's the biology and this is the literature department and this is education, this is medicine, right? And then, there are these kind of siloed academic departments based on particular expertise, but then there are also increasingly common interdisciplinary approaches, interdisciplinary approaches where you're bringing to bear a range of different forms of expertise. And here the problem rather than the discipline becomes the focal point. And a very diverse expertise is relevant. And what I would say, what I often say is that, that dukkha is an interdisciplinary problem. Yeah. It, it is not the province of just like uh, one discourse. Yeah. Be it uh, Dharma or science or anything. And um, the fact that um, the Dharma is, is the only medicine, I would say, for certain species of suffering doesn't mean it's the medicine for all species of suffering. Yeah. And how we, we kind of, this, this dialogue that's happening between disciplines is important and we want to have it in in intelligent ways. So what is the stance? And I, I have, you know, I have like very deep devotion, you know, in, for, in to science and the spirit of empiricism and obviously to the Dharma, which I have, have, uh, you know, dedicated my energy to my life to. Um, and so anyway, as I talk, I'm sort of like, um, I, on one shoulder, I have my uh, Dharma teachers. And on the other shoulder, I have my scientific mentors. And I'm trying not to mortify either of them. And we will see how I do. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. So what is the uh, what is the stance of the Dharma towards other discourses, towards science, medicine, philosophy, history, these things? Um, what is the stance of a religious tradition to these other other traditions? So so one 
possible stance is just to ignore, to ignore these other disciplines. And this would go something like, well, the Dharma is, is, um, Dukkha might be an interdisciplinary problem, but the Dharma is really sufficient for all that truly matters. Yeah. Another stance might be competition. You know, this is a very familiar stance of um, religious traditions towards the secular, a sense of like, uh, yeah, that, that the, the secular, the scientific, the historical is a kind of encroachment on this um, sacred ground of the Dharma needs to be fought off in some ways. You see this acted out historically and at present. Um, Another way of situating Dharma science is something like um, what um, non-overlapping magisteria. Yeah, so there's a a famous phrase from uh, Stephen Jay Gould um, uh, who... um, was you know was a kind of you know, bio- evolutionary biologist and um, was trying and and a science communicator and was trying to situate like find a way for religion and science to coexist somewhat peacefully and um, Gould said science tries to document the factual character of the natural world and to develop theories that coordinate and explain these facts. Religion, on the other hand, operates in the equally important but utterly different realm of human purposes, meanings, and values, subjects that the factual domain of science might illuminate but can never resolve. That was, that was his attempt, non-overlapping magisteria, ways of, of um, situating uh, Dharma, science, uh, religion, science. Yeah. Um, there is another way and, uh, of something like selective appropriation. Um, there's, there's the cultural appropriation of kind of on one side of, of science or mental health of, um, uh, you know, divorcing mindfulness from its cultural, rich cultural history. But the other side, there's a kind of selective appropriation of high, you know, for example, the, these sort of tropes in Dharma of highlighting supportive scientific data, you know, things that sort of confirm our Buddhist presuppositions and sort of trotting out data that amplify those, um, you know, so much of like the way neuroscience is used rhetorically is an attempt to convince us that we should keep practicing, you know, which is okay. That's all right. But this is a kind of selectively, you know, cherry picking certain, certain bits of science as a way of reinforcing um, Buddhist notions. And I just want to say, um, science doesn't just give, it also takes. Yeah. And so if we as Dharma practitioners get into the business of marshalling scientific evidence for our claims, um, we want to do this carefully because, um, science doesn't just give, it will take too. Yeah. Now, the last kind of relationship between these, these different um, traditions, which is, is closest to my heart, is uh, something like a conversation. It is um, a truly bi-directional flow of information. It is treating dukkha as an interdisciplinary problem with a, a, a degree of reverence for the, re, the, the respective zones of expertise. And, and it is 
about accepting influence. You know, in couples therapy, there's a notion of like accepting influence. Can one partner accept the influence of another? Yeah. And um, I think uh, we want to, to be open, open to accepting influence. So, um, there is, uh, I want to say, the problem of scientism. Scientism. In this discussion, there's the problem of scientism, which is sort of the sense that, um, that science is the ultimate, you know, ultimate arbiter of all kind of claims and all value or something. It's sort of, um, yeah, kind of reductionistic vision of the plurality of uh, knowledge traditions. And um, yeah, Karl Popper said, despite my admiration for scientific knowledge, I'm not an adherent of scientism. For scientism dogmatically asserts the authority of scientific knowledge, whereas I do not believe in any authority and have always resisted dogmatism. Um, The more you study the philosophy of science, the more humble you are about what science does and does not do. And, uh, and so there needs to be, a, there is, and I think in, in scientists who, who are conscious of the, the, this, the philosophy, the kind of epistemological understanding of science, um, there is a lot of humility and, and um, empiricism is the scientific method is um, uh you know, has staggering power. And many of the claims of the Dharma are empirical claims. They are, they are empirically testable claims. They are falsifiable claims. Yeah. The nature of unhappiness, of well-being, of flourishing. Claims about the value of training or attention in this way. Claims about the value of ethics for well-being, claims about how mindfulness alleviates suffering. These are all actually empirical claims. And science is a a powerful way of assessing the validity of empirical claims. And maybe even more fundamental, Science, uh, in my experience, is not always practiced in this way, but science, I think when done well, is actually a form of intellectual honesty. It's a form of intellectual honesty, a willingness to be wrong. And um, that is, um, the willingness to be wrong is like just obviously profoundly lacking in the world. So um, the last thing I want to say about this, uh, and then I'll just say a few more things before we pause and open it, um, is that the commitment to deep love, to awareness, to a kind of reverential stance to the, in relation to, to uh, the Dharma, I feel this is actually compatible with a scientific sensibility. And there's this sense of like, well, if we, if we welcome in kind of some of the empiricism, what happens is somehow the sacred will be compromised. And um, I don't, think it has to be that way. It might go that way, but I don't think it has to be that way. And I don't think the kind of openness to the discourse of science, these kinds of things, um, necessitates a kind of reductionistic vision of the path, of its potency, of its beauty, of its depth. 
sincere integrations are possible, sincere, beautiful integrations of the, the mindfulness tradition of Dharma tradition are possible. As an example, um, uh, Marsha, Marsha Linehan developed uh, dialectical behavior therapy as used initially around borderline personality, but kind of generally emotion dysregulation and um, self-harming behaviors and um, and mindfulness really, it's not like one of the modules, it's sort of a backbone of that, that treatment approach. And um, Linehan, uh, about 10 years ago, sort of um, revealed the origins of, of, of the, the treatment that she's largely responsible for, for uh, developing. And so this is from the New York Times. Um, Are you one of us? The the patient wanted to know, and her therapist, Marsha M. Linehan of the University of Washington, creator of a treatment used worldwide for severely suicidal people, had a ready answer. Um, It was the one she always used to cut the question short whether a patient asked it hopefully, accusingly, or knowingly, having glimpsed the macrame of faded burns, cuts, and welts on Dr. Linehan's arms. You mean, have I suffered? No, Marcia, the patient replied in an, in an encounter last spring. I mean, one of us, like us, because... If you were, it would um, give all of us so much hope. That did it, said Dr. Linehan, 68, who told her story in public for the first time last week before an audience of friends, families, and doctors at the Institute of Living, the Hartford Clinic, where she was first treated for extreme social withdrawal at age 17. So many people begged me to come forward, and I just thought, well, I have to do this. I owe it to them. I cannot die a coward. And then um, she disclosed her own history of of mental illness and failed treatment and uh, a sense of... um, yeah, the depth of hopelessness of that and the necessity of like, okay, we can do better. How do we treat people like me? You know? And then some years later, I saw her, um, her dedication to one of the, the kind of, uh, one of the workbooks, you know, one of the DBT workbooks and, um, which is a skills workbook. It's developing skills of emotion regulation. And, um, and she wrote, um, when I'm on retreats if each afternoon, I walk and wring my hands, saying to all the mental health patients of the world, you don't have to wring your hands today. I'm doing it for you. Often when I dance in the hallway of my house or with groups, I invite all the mental health patients of the world to come dance with me. This book is dedicated to all the patients of the world that think no one's thinking of them. I considered telling you that I would practice skills for you so you don't have to practice them. But then I realized that if I did, you would not learn how to be skillful yourself. So instead... I wish you skillful means, and I wish that you find these skills useful. Um, I find that touching, yeah. And um, you can't write a dedication like that unless your your heart has been pierced in some way by the path of practice. 
And uh, I have some trust that when, uh, when one has a kind of deep encounter with the path of practice, that the modifications, the distillations, the, the articulations of, of this path of practice, uh, no matter what they look like, they will, they will have integrity if they come out of an understanding of, of the depth of what's possible. So um, we can can hear many of the themes that I've been articulating in this last last piece I'll share, which is um, from a number of the 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 leaders in the kind of movement around mindfulness based programs. So this is John Kabat Zinn, you know, uh, Christina Feldman, the the Buddhist teacher, Judd Brewer, um, and um, and they asked in 2016 paper like um, the the what is the warp and the weft of um, mindfulness based programs, and so I, I, I think the warp on in like a uh, uh, rug is sort of like the the backbone of of it and the weft is sort of the the design or something and so what is the, what is the what is the warp and the weft of um of mindfulness based programs and i'll just i'll just read you know the five essential qualities of mindfulness based programs you'll hear innovations and you'll also hear echoes of of the the dharma path which were familiar so mindfulness-based programs are informed by theories and practices that draw from a confluence of contemplative traditions science and the disciplines of medicine psychology and education two is underpinned by a model of human experience which addresses the causes of human distress and the pathways to relieving it. Three, develops a new relationship with experience characterized by present moment focus, decentering, and an approach orientation. Four, supports the development of greater attentional, emotional, and behavioral self-regulation, as well as positive qualities such as compassion, wisdom, equanimity. And five, engages the participant in a sustained intensive training in mindfulness meditation practice in an, ex- in an experiential inquiry-based learning process and in exercises to develop insight and understanding. Uh, now, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious how that reads to you, how that lands. And you can certainly hear a lot of echoes of, of the Dharma path and, um, and also uh, more of this kind of interdisciplinary approach and a, a highlighting particular aspects of the Dharma path and to the exclusion of others, for example. Um, this was their their attempt to um, to characterize uh, mindfulness based programming. Yeah, the warp of mindfulness based programming and. Um, and this whole conversation is happening in the context of um, John Kabat-Zinn's work, um, uh, which is, uh, um, he said this in 2011, yeah. Mindfulness-based stress reduction, the eight-week program that's quite prominent as sort of secular mindfulness um, was developed as one of a possibly infinite number of skillful means for bringing the Dharma into mainstream settings. It has never been about MBSR for its own sake. It has always been about the M, and the M is a very big M. 
we use the word mindfulness intentionally as an umbrella term to describe our work and to link it explicitly with what I have always considered to be a universal dharma that is coextensive, if not identical, with the teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha Dhamma. Yeah. So, um, I don't know where that leaves us, you know. What are we to think of all of this? And, uh, um, and I don't want to fight about it either, but I do want to open for um, questions and uh, uh, um, just any, any initial responses to, to me laying it out in this way. Um, if you, um, yeah, if you want to, uh, want to ask a, a question, um, uh, maybe you can raise your, your electronic hand and I'll, uh, I'll unmute you. Yeah, uh, that sounded, the, dis- the self-description sounded incredibly idealistic, particularly about the sustained, serious practice. Um, the uh, few people I've known who are not Buddhists who have done some sort of mindfulness thing, it was pretty short and not, you know, not sustained, not deep and they came came away one friend of mine came away not really understanding what what it was or what the point was and i mean she's very intelligent she has a phd in psychology and it wasn't very you know i mean that's that's um anecdotal but and the other question i had was uh the fifth description point was that it would mindfulness uh, the mindfulness movement is approach oriented, and I didn't know what that meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So let's see. Um, I think w- one of the things you're pointing to is is, is sort of a question of uh, of attrition, to put it in clinical language, like. What are the attrition rates in the Dharma realm, in the mindfulness realm? It's high. It's high. I don't know exactly what it is. People finish, generally finish their, the dropout rates for like an eight week mindfulness class are, are quite low, probably lower than CBT or something like that or similar to, to that. Um, I don't know what CBT oh, is. A cognitive behavioral therapy. So like a, a standardized treatment. Um, they're, uh-huh. The dropout is, but eight weeks is that right in the course of a Dharma life. What are we, is that, is that a sufficient dose, right? Like how many people, it's amazing to me that there are treatment effects after eight weeks, because when I think about my mind on day one and day 56, it was a circus gone wrong on day one and the same at day 56, and so like that there are benefits and, and there are probably the benefits, you know, in those early phases of treatment are like probably mostly cognitive reframing kind of benefits, actually reappraisal, not attentional benefits. So another mm-hmm. question maybe we'll get into, but it's like, yeah, are we, this is like the, the equivalent of giving, uh, you know, half a milligram of Prozac rather than the 20, which is standard, you know? And so, um, uh, how, what are we, how are, do we understand attrition in the different spheres? Are there ways of, of minimizing that? What does it mean about, you know, the people who stay? And it may be the people we see that may be that this group right here, we're the kind of um, super responders, you know, that are like highly unrepresentative of the initial sample. You know, we're the weirdos, actually. And we somehow stayed for whatever reason, you know, and, um, um, and understanding those, understanding, you know, the what we would call like the moderators of treatment responsiveness, the variables that predict a kind of 
stronger response to uh, to the meditation treatment to the Dharma treatment. That's um, that's important. Um, and then the second second thing um, was um, the approach orientation. This is this is I will talk about more about that later in the morning. That is alluding to the fact that. Um, much of our distress, especially anxiety, but other things too, um, is sustained by rigid, habituated forms of avoidance. And, uh, and mindfulness is an approach orientation it, it, in its basis. Like all the instructions that you hear in guided meditations are ones of approach. Yeah. And so this is, this is, um, this is, I, I think, you know, one way of, and of thinking about the Dharma, I will say more of this is it is an exposure therapy, which is an, an approach orientation to all phenomena. We say it poetically, you know, in a, in instructions, I said something about all phenomena are the is the the buddha whispering in our ear or something yeah that's a weird way of putting it but it's like that's an approach orientation yeah that's and the deepest kind of approach is love it's love and samadhi that's the deepest contact we can make with phenomena and in this way the 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 potential kind of extinction learning is most profound when we approach that deeply. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll say more about that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, Diane, please. Um, hi. Um, so that figure about three quarters of them starting it because of health issues is, yeah. is probably the way. John Kabat-Zinn started it. Um, but that sort of explains to me why I don't, uh, why I, how much I need Sangha and, um, and how judgmental I get against all of us who are suffering versus those who manage to get by. Mm-hmm. And I just came off a, a two-month retreat, my first, mm-hmm. and it was great, and it was not the miracle I wanted. <laughs> Mm-hmm. and um, this is darn hard, and I'm running out of time. Mm-hmm. And um, I just feel like uh, I'm envious of those people who manage to get by better um, because why not, you know, make hay while the sun is shining? I don't know where my question is, but I'm sure I said enough for you to react to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice to see you. Um yeah yeah um well um you know some of the language around around dharma is like it's it's measure measureless meaning we're we're actually invited to uh step out of the realm of um the comparing mind yeah so i i get yeah. where you're coming from i know i know you're going to be like oh i know i know matthew <laughs> but it's like no we're invited to like this is not the view from which to understand suffering it is suffering itself yeah oh. yeah and so like okay how do you actually greater than less than equal to it's like no we're 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 really being invited out of that realm because it is that is that is symptomatic of the dukkha itself yeah and so and it's one of the most i mean uh it's one of the most painful mind states you know it's just just gruesome like uh there is an uh an essayist who said something like of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. You know? <laughs> right? Like that's the yeah. only one, like the lust and the, well, you know, whatever gluttony, yeah. you know, like, 
yeah, Envy is the only one with no fun at all. And it is no fun at all. And so it's like, okay, let me just, this is another expression of Sakyaditi. And like, this is the kind of, this is, this is needs to be, as my teacher said, love to death, love to death, you know? And so just be careful how you, you know, kind of uh, the, the defective Dharma self congeals. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, Ram, please. Um, there. Okay, got you now, yeah. Yes. Hi, Matthew. Um, Hi, welcome. Beautiful. So the reason I signed up to this course is, first of all, honestly, uh, Matthew Brent Silver, I saw the name, I, I registered, then I read the topic, you know. <laughs> so I, I love the way uh, every one of your courses have uh, impacted me. Um, I've been practicing eight years. Uh, I'm really very disciplined. I do two and a half hours meditation every day, and I've done 10 weeks of retreat last year, unfortunately, or fortunately, all on Zoom. Um, the question that concerns that I, I come from a STEM background, but I have this deep desire to know topic like what you're talking, hmm. right? I mean, science of mindfulness, I, this is not, I don't have any academic credentials behind this. I'm wondering why am I interested in this topic? <laughs> First of all, number two, is it going to... Wait, over? why are you interested in, in what topic exactly? In, in, the, in the, the science and psychology of mindfulness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I'm enjoying the practice very much. I'm yeah. devoted to it. I'm also a chaplain. I serve in a prison and all the good stuff, life... But there is, I'm only, I'm starting to think, I have read enough books on science of mindfulness of the Dalai Lama's compilation of science and <laughs> the work he uh, organized. I'm starting to wonder, is it not helping my path this much <laughs> with this much approach to knowledge? Should I just break away from this and just yeah. enjoy and experience the practice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate that. I... Um... I think, um, yeah, it, it's totally legitimate to put all of this down and just practice, you know, sincerely. It really is. I, I do not feel like it's necessary, you know, for, for many people. Um, I, I feel like for a long time, the meditation research was so kind of, kind of primitive and sort of reductionistic. It was kind of just like demonstration projects, just yeah. saying like, we're not, this is not a cult. Right. Really, there's something here. There's something here. That was the sort of spirit of a lot of it, just dignifying it as a, a topic for empirically responsive people or something like that. And it did not add much to, to practice, but now I think we're starting to get into just recently starting to get to the point where people who clearly have fallen in love with Dharma and have a yeah. long history and are, are collaborating in interdisciplinary teams, or they are the scientists themselves. And uh, it's been seeded in a lot of different ways and it's starting to get to the point where it's changing some of how I think about practice wow. and some of the science is actually feeding back into how I think about Dharma practice. And so that's starting to, that's starting to happen. But I think um, uh, I don't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel like uh, obligated to look to the emerging science around, around mindfulness to yeah. like support your path of practice. And, oh, you know, yeah. yeah. See, this has got 2,500 year history. I get that, right? Uh, is it going to help me overcome hindrances in some unique way? I have all the, I'm also basically putting this all under craving. I have yet another craving wanting to know <laughs> this topic, but I can't explain it. Thank you so much for your response. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we sort of like, uh, get a little academic and sort of like soak that up, but then we need to like dry it out, dry yeah. the ground out with more practice, but you're doing a lot of practice. And so that's great. Yeah. Okay. Um, two, two more and then we'll, 
Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, let's see. Where are we at? Um, okay, let's take the last last three questions here, and then we'll we'll take a break. Um, yeah, please. Hi. Uh, yeah. Thank you for doing this. I think you're amazing. Um, and I just wanted to um, say I enjoy the um, the same thing that. I think it was Ram said, just, it's interesting. It's fascinating. Like what's more interesting than this? I guess I feel I, I do the same thing he does and kind of have the same background and just feel like I, this is just so interesting. <laughs> anyway, um, I have two questions that are sort of outward pointing. One of them is about four or five years ago, I watched, I went to a several day um retreat type thing uh, where they played every day a section of talks by Pema Chodron on this topic. And I've never been able to find it again. It was recorded. And I was wondering if you know what it is. It was really interesting. She went through and said, this is what we know about the brain. And this is what we know about the Dharma. And she was talking about the parameters. Do you, do you happen to know? I don't know. I don't. It was really interesting and it was really good <laughs> and, and uh, real meaty stuff. And I haven't been able, I've gone through all kinds of, you know, I've tried to find it and I can't, can't find it. So it's out there. Okay. <laughs> and okay. Um, the yeah. other one is also similar. I'm wondering, I mean, do you know Sam Harris's work? Do you, I mean, does he, oh, so, crazy. Some, some, some of it, some of it. Yeah. So I just was wondering if 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 you did if you could if you could talk at all about his his approach to neuroscience and dharma and how that aligns with yours because it seems very similar. I'd love to hear an interview him interview you because I think that would be great. But I didn't know how close you were to his work. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I definitely don't know it enough to to speak to it. Um, yeah, okay. I'm so, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. I know. I know he's in kind of like. Uh, sort of Dzogchen, um, you know, is sort of blending a little bit of the Vipassana approach with some of the Dzogchen approach and, and, um, and the kind of, and talks in sort of non-dualish sort of ways a, a lot of times, but kind of in a, in a sort of, um, without smuggling in as much metaphysics, you know, and yeah. so, um and yeah, anyway, I, I, I don't know. I really don't know about like, uh, the pr- approach well enough, but it's that I see that, you know, his app that is like a common one to, for in coming in from retreats. I'm seeing that more and more. Yeah. So sorry. I can't speak more to it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just wanted to know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, please. Hi, Matthew. Thank you so much for, um, you know, offering this point of view. It's It's been expansive uh, for me to listen. Um, I guess I'm one of those people at the moment enrolled in a science-based mindfulness training program. Uh, but I feel a sense of betrayal mm. towards because, you know, like uh, I'm a lover of the Dhamma. And so now I have the Dukkha of the love, yeah, which yeah. The, you know, a sense of betrayal towards the Dhamma to eliminate it completely from the conversation. And I'm, I'm kind of trying to find a way in where I can hold both and, you know, not, not see it as an, either or um yeah i was just wondering if you if you had some some could shine some light on on a path Mm -hmm. that might you know help me receive uh what i signed up with a noble motivation and not not reject it (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah 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 um well i think it 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 a lot of it is how it's done like is it done with you know with integrity and with heart and with a kind of reverence for the sacred is it done with um uh yeah is it done with um a kind of a sense of of not like 
highly selectively extracting you know practices in these reductionistic ways versus you know like which can feel really yucky really yucky you know and um versus like being skillful means skillful means and i i think that depends a lot on the wholesomeness of the intentions of the people designing the intervention and i for me the line i teach in mostly buddhist settings but but some in very secular settings primarily ucla and um and for me the dividing line is not buddhist versus secular the the dividing line is kind of like you know reverence for the sacred versus the kind of uh commodification of attentional practice you know and that to me is what what matters and um and so i think there are ways of doing of, of sharing the practice um in secular contexts that are really have heart and have that sense of reverence with it but it can get tricky especially when it gets pressured pressurized by kind of symptom orientation where it's like the practice has to deliver on these outcomes and it's this very short term window and you're really taking that half milligram of Prozac and and then the practice itself becomes cramped because we're sort of like um yeah it, it just like there's the the delight of investigation uh you know is sort of not there and the sort of the for, the pressure of becoming of like bhava tanha is so strong and it's like i don't know i don't know so it's it's tricky but i i i think it can it can be done but it 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 depends and i i might share your sense of like yeah you know um tenisro biku was asked about this and um and i i don't remember all of his response but i do remember one component which was kind of stayed with me you know he was hesitant in in the, his own ways as he would be but um it was something like um any way that, that buddhism makes its way into culture is a good thing and i i that was meaningful to me even in its like reductionistic or you know like forms or something like it was like any ways that the you know wisdom compassion makes its way in this is a good thing and i sort of keep that in my heart and um um that stayed with me and so um yeah how does that how is all this sound or where does this leave you yeah yeah um you know i'm i'm also recognizing there's a hindrance here within myself as well so i appreciate you sharing you know even your dialogue with it and your inquiry with it um what comes up is you know there's this uh presentation that if mindfulness is presented with the name of dhamma or buddha mm-hmm. it is not going to be received mm-hmm. um and that that's the idea that a part of me wants to challenge yeah uh, because in my own experience it is not true because i spent years not attaching the buddha or the dharma to my practice mm-hmm. and i was spinning mm-hmm. and the minute i kind of made that association and kind of dove into that world it it started to unfold in a meaningful way so to assume that we remove it it's mm-hmm. uh, that, that that's my that's my question yeah right? yeah and i i'm i don't have an answer and so i'm i'm trying to just explore and expand my perspective and yeah i really appreciate this conversation yeah 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 Th- well thanks for your warm heartedness around it and um i i can say like just within the university context because there are religion theology departments all this stuff it's actually way less cramped there you know when i'm at ucla medical school it's like it's 
very easy for me just to start by kind of like articulating the roots of mindfulness, you know, and using poly words and all, all of this. It's like, it's not weird there at all. You know, it's more in some of the kind of educational settings where it get it feels more cramped kind of. And, um, and so, yeah, I hope we can, you know, it feels, you know, it's like John Kabat-Zinn, would be mortified that people think he invented mindfulness or something like that was never his intention. And he kind of came out in that article I read from in 2011, you know, um, in, in a very striking way. And um, that felt important to me. And on, on, on our side, on the Buddhist side, like we, um, there can just be like a little creeping territoriality about, <laughs> about it, you know, so it's like no one owns the Dhamma, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like uh, we, we all belong to it equally or something like that. And so um, anyway, I just, uh, you know, say, say that too, just for us to watch in our, in our own minds and um, yeah, but may it be done well, may it be done well. And, um, um, and uh, maybe the last thing I'll say is just that what what often what what the what the Buddhists tend to accuse the secular folks of leaving out is sila uh, ethics. That has not generally been my experience. The sila is really actually well represented. The ethical roots of it is well represented in a lot of the secular mindfulness stuff. What is left out in the secular articulations is the renunciation the surrender that's that is what is minimized actually and uh renunciation is at the heart of this path mindfulness is not something for nothing right and so um it's it's tricky right because it's like you enter a, a, a you know a dharma hall and the teacher basically asks you for your life yeah that is not a reasonable starting point in a lot of you know therapy a mindfulness class edu- a school so this kind of thing and so the renunciation is sort of like it's like titrated you know and, and it's like they start like a, with a really really small ask you know just take a look at your mind, you know, whereas we kind of begin with like, take refuge down on your knees, you know, like this is, you know, the depth, the breadth of practice, you know, that kind of reverence. Right. And um, anyway, more to be said. So. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, last one, please. Sue. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to add another perspective, uh, which kind of reinforces what what you were just just saying. Um, I was in one of the eight week uh, uh, mindfulness uh, based stress reduction classes uh, in a medical setting at the same time that I was really starting to explore the Dharma. And for me, it was very synergistic. Uh, because I was able to to see the limitations of the class, but also, you know, how it related to some of the other things I was doing. Um, I think that the woman who taught it, um, she was a practitioner, but she was uh, uh, she was really walking a tightrope between the secular piece and the spiritual piece, because. Most of the people in the class uh, were there uh, because of physical problems. Uh, the the most common was was chronic pain. In fact, I think John Kabat-Zinn started the whole thing as when he was associated with the uh, with the pain clinic at the University of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, she she wanted to be able to reach everybody on whatever level they could relate. And uh, some of some of the people, you know, obviously were not Buddhist. Some of them were not religious at all. Some of them were uh, practitioners of other religions that wouldn't be able to relate to it if she spoke in ter- in Dharma terms. And so she really didn't. But but I don't think she was was diluting 
uh, what uh, what she was presenting. She was just uh, uh, doing it in a way that she thought she could reach the most people and uh, that they would be able to take what they could from it. So that was that. That was my perspective to the class. It, it had uh, limited application to me, but I was able to 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 use what I could from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Got it. Great. Thanks for the the testimonial there. And um, yeah, um, you know. In a way, in a way, I I feel like very deeply, obviously connected to the the Buddhist tradition, and um, and at the same time, I do think sometimes like, look, if I can't articulate this in a different language, if I need to if I need to legitimate this practice by referencing the suttas. Is that maybe a problem, you know? And I want to be able to, I, I think we can actually talk about, um, talk about these practices in a range of different ways that, that are not, not self-referential, you know, not, it's not, it's not um, citing the authority of the text itself, you know? And so I think there are ways to really talk about the depths of practice that are, uh, amenable to to even um, you know very scientifically minded folks, but I I do get the tightrope, and I get uh, and I don't think it's legitimate to say you know like well Buddhism is not a religion, it's a philosophy, or it's just self evident you know like at some level all religions think they're not religions you know it's like you know it's not like you know, they, they, we study the word of God. That's not a religion, right? That's just like the truth. Yeah. And like, same thing with the Dharma. Um, and so anyway, I don't want to wander into uh, philosophical territory of which I'm not qualified to speak, but uh, so I will take a break precisely now. And um, yeah, but I appreciate the, the spirit of the conversation and um so let's let's take a little time uh, away from from the screen. Um.